Good to see you all here tonight. We're going to be continuing our journey through Samuel. We're starting 2 Samuel tonight. Originally, there weren't two different books. It was all just one book, the book of Samuel, but we've divided it up into two books. I don't know why they did, but they have. And last week, I mean, we tackled the subject of suicide. It was kind of a dark, you know, topic, but it actually ended with a a bright spot, as bright as you can in that series, in that topic, where something that Saul had done 40 years previously had actually turned out to be a bright spot in his life where the men of Jabesh Gilead traveled all night to take Saul's body down from the wall. Uh, that the Philistines had put up there to desecrate him, and they remembered the goodness that Saul had shown them 40 years previously, and it paid off to that point, at least in them taking the body of himself, Saul, and his son, Jonathan, down from the wall. And so at that point, when Saul took his life, remember that David and his men who were living in the Philistine territory left to go get their wives and children back from the Amalekites that were in Ziklag. They were there, and they had to go pursue them. And that's where we pick up 2 Samuel, basically right where we left off with 1 Samuel. And it says in verse 1, After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Now, when you see someone coming to you with their clothes torn and dust on their head, this wasn't a good sign, not because they were dirty. What this was was a sign of mourning. And so as this person is coming up to him and has his clothes torn and the dust on his head, he's entering into your presence in this place of position of mourning. So you know bad news is coming. And so as David sees this man, he comes and hears the story. Verse 3, where have you come from, David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Now, last week when we looked at how Saul died, is this how it looked? No? What's the difference here? 
right? So he took his own life, killed himself too. Okay, so what's the deal here? What's happening? Is this man lying? Maybe trying to find favor with David saying, hey, I did this. I I took Saul's life because he was in this bad place. Another thought is that Saul suicide actually uh, didn't take. In other words, he actually didn't kill himself. And when this young man came, because how would he know all the circumstances unless he was there watching or else he came alongside Saul afterwards and Saul was not yet dead and then this event took place. Terrible statistic, but 80% of those who attempt suicide uh, don't succeed. Um, And a lot of people are left disfigured and bear the scars of that. And so it's possible that Saul actually didn't kill himself, but was still in this place where he was now unable to kill himself and worried about the Philistines coming to get him. Either way, it's terrible, terrible situation. But but this young man comes here in this time of mourning, and he, he presents this case, whether he's lying or whether this actually happened, this is how he's presenting the story to David. And David said to the young man who brought him the report, where are you from? I am the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Let's talk about this. Interesting conversation that takes place between David, this young man, coming to bring David news and ends up being killed because of it. Why do you think David reacted this way? He kind of tells us in the passage, but what are your thoughts? I mean, what what was motivating David to kill this person for this news and information? Because he had killed the king. Okay. And we've seen that there were twice... Two other episodes where David had the opportunity to kill Saul, but would not. This young man probably did not know about those accounts. Probably thought that Saul and David were still at odds with one another. Remember, even Saul's armor bearer was afraid to kill the king. He didn't want that, and so he refused to do it. But this person didn't care. Where Did this person come from, this young person? He was a son of what? The Malachites. Where had David just come from, from the people who took his wives and children and raided the Amalekites? You know, it's a terrible thing to think that there is prejudice or that people would react on those kinds of things. Um... But we can't ignore the option that David had just came from the Amalekites, wiped out the city that had taken his wife and children and all their things captive, comes back and he asks this man, where are you from? He goes, I'm a foreigner, I'm an Amalekite. And then David responds. Uh, If you guys know or have known people who have been involved with battle or in war, 
there is a certain prejudice that can take place when you're fighting against uh, a people. I remember I was friends uh, with this Japanese uh, young man and his girlfriend's father fought in World War II against the Japanese. And here she was dating a Japanese young man and the dad had a really hard time with it. Because the things that he went through and experienced against this nationality, this nation and these people, to him it left scarring memories. And now here is her daughter, his daughter, marrying someone from this group of people. And it was a difficult thing for him. He got over it. He had to. She wasn't going to stop loving this guy. But it was a difficult thing for him to get past that prejudice in his mind. Or, or maybe people who have fought in the Gulf and in the Middle East. And there's definitely been a time in our own nation where there becomes a prejudice against people of the Middle East, or they get seen in a certain light, especially if someone is in that sphere of battle and those things where you start seeing or hearing things that the military does and you think, oh, that's terrible. How could they do that? Well, they're in this frame of mind, and we can't ignore that David just came from slaughtering the Amalekites who took his wife and children and stuff, and then now he comes and he hears that this boy who was an Amalekite killed the king of Israel. And so David's response is, okay, take that. Now, again, David is showing respect for the throne. This person did not. Even though Saul had tried to kill David for years, David still respected Saul. This person, who was a foreigner, didn't respect him. And so we see, because of these things, David just says, okay, you didn't fear to take the king's life, so strike him dead. Now, part of me, I don't know about you guys, but part of me says, this poor guy, right? This poor guy sees this, maybe he's lying and just, oh, I know, I'll get in good with David because Saul's dead and I think David's going to be king. This is my inn. This is my ticket. And he fabricates a story or else he actually did kill Saul. And he comes to them and he brings the crown and he brings the ban. He goes, look at, I've done this great thing. And then David says, okay, you're dead. I mean, just bad news. Difficult time and struggle that's taking place. And again, we can't really understand the emotion of what's happening right now. Saul was the first king. Saul was anointed by God to be king. And now the king is dead from the enemy. There is turmoil in the nation. There is upheaval. There is uncertainty. There is unrest. Everyone's a little bit nervous right now what's going to happen. You guys remember 9-11 when it took place and 
everyone was horrified. What what does this mean? What's going to happen? And I remember talking to my kids when they were watching the planes crash into the towers. And at first they were like, oh, look at that. That's amazing. And I was like, you guys, you don't understand. This is going to change how life is for this country from now on. And so even more so here, there is instability and uncertainty. And so there's a lot of unrest that's taking place. And so have to understand and, and try and get hold of that emotion as it's taking place. In verse 17, David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashir. Now, the book of Jashir is mentioned also in Joshua. It's mentioned in Joshua chapter, where is it? 10. Joshua chapter 10, verse 13. And what this is, is a collection of Hebrew poetry. We don't have it any longer, but there was a collection of Hebrew poetry. And so this is a song that was written and is found in that book. And so here, here is David now back to writing songs. Remember, for the year and a half that he was in Philistine territory, he didn't write any psalms. There was no music coming out of David during this exile period. And, and this was a dark time in his life. And all of a sudden now, at this time, again, a dark time, but there is a song born in David's heart. Starting at verse 19, let's look at this song and let's talk about it. A gazelle lies slain in your heights, Israel, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, which is a Philistine city. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, again, another Philistine city. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, there where Saul was Slain. May you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. The shields were made of leather, and so they'd put oil on them so that they wouldn't crack and dry and be brittle. And I've heard, I don't know that this is true, and you can't find it on Snopes, you know, urban legends, but I heard that there's a place there on Mount Gilboa where it is desolate, where everywhere around it does grow and flourish, but on this one area, there actually is no vegetation growing. I heard that, but I haven't been able to verify. It'd be cool if it's true. So I just throw it out there for entertainment in our minds. Anyway, so he goes on, verse 22. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. And so here is this song 
that lifts up Saul and Jonathan. Does anything strike you guys in these words and in this song? As we've been going through the story. Yes. Varying and endearing. So it just shows this kind of love for Saul and Jonathan. And we know about the relationship that David had with Jonathan very close. David confided, or Jonathan confided in David and actually trusted that he was going to be king even before Saul died. Anything else stand out to you? Does all of this ring true for you guys, this song? Overly complimentary. It was very gracious, wasn't it? It was a gracious song. Have, have This is a terrible thing to talk about, but have you ever been to a memorial service where everyone talks about the person who passed away and you're like, wow, that person's nicer than I knew, perhaps. <laughs> you know, you, don't, you wouldn't say that, but it's, it's not uncommon for people at this time to try and, you know, be very gracious. I mean, Saul and Jonathan, life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles and stronger than lions. Was Saul really swifter than an eagle? I mean, Jonathan, we have an account of him slaying and doing some mighty things, but not really so much with Saul. And even when it says, they clothed you in scarlet tree and finery, did Saul really do that much? I mean, our record of him isn't as flattering as we've been going through 1 Samuel, he murdered a bunch of priests because he was upset with them because he, they allowed David to eat the showbread. He was pursuing David. He, he just didn't seem like a real nice guy. We do see that David had an endearing heart for him, would not raise his sword against him. But again, it's a very flattering song and a very gracious song. So what can we take from this? I think this is a testament to David and why he is a man after God's own heart is because he did not hold on to the bitterness of what Saul had done, but actually showed kindness in turn. And that's a hard thing to do, is when someone has wronged you to actually not wrong back, but to exalt and to bless. And that's what we see David doing. We see David not returning evil for evil, but actually returning good. And what a difficult thing that is. At least it's been difficult for me. And what a gracious thing that is. We see David, if you're going to say this song is an error or it is tainted, it's tainted in a way that is beneficial for the person and not detrimental. And again, that's gracious. I, I, I pray that would be the case for me. And remember Jesus' word, with what measure you judge, you will be judged. Think about that in this light. Here is a person trying to kill me, and I lift them up and give them this kind of gracious song. How is God going to reward that? Definitely the throne was something that was important to him. And so this, you know, this ends Saul's reign and David presents it with a song 
David's back to songwriting. He's found a song again, and, and he's writing once again, and he's giving this praise to Saul in this area. You know, kind of like, I feel a song coming on. And, and there it goes. He sings this song. And then what's next? Where do we go from here? And that's chapter 2. That's where we go. We go to the next chapter because there it is. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. I love this. This verse just really is rich. First of all, it says in a course of time. We don't know how much time. But we know that this is about 40 years after the prophet Samuel anointed David to be king. Just think about that. 40 years after the fact, this is what's taking place. And we'll see the importance of that in verse 4. But David has been exiled for a year and a half and now he has this discussion because he remembers Samuel anointing him. He remembers Saul saying, one day you're going to be king. He remembers Jonathan saying, you're going to be king. And so is it time to go back? And should I go back to Judah? And I love that what we see here is this dialogue taking place with David and the Lord. Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? And then there's an answer. The Lord says, go up. And then he says, where should I go? And then there's another answer. Go to Hebron. I, I wonder if our prayers are ever inquisitive about God. I wonder if we ever ask God questions about what he thinks or what we should do, or do we just ask God to bless what we are going to do? Or do we just ask God for things? Because here is this dialogue that's taking place. And, and do you ever get to that place where something happens, there's some injustice, like these three women who have been captive for 10 years in the news, and you hear that and you're just like, oh my gosh, Lord what do you think about that? God, what should be done to this man? Do we ever ask those questions of God? Or do we just throw our judgment out and just throw our thoughts? Do we ever inquire of God about the circumstances around us and wait for an answer? Wait for his voice to speak to us or the scriptures to speak out to us. Because David did. He inquired and then he heard from the Lord. Lord, do you want us to do this? And then God answers back. I remember years ago asking the Lord if he wanted me to take this step to leave this area that I had been involved in. And I just, it was just one of, God, 
do you want me to do this? Is this really what I should do? And I remember getting a scripture, just reading a scripture, or actually I heard the scripture in a study and it jumped out at me and I felt like God was using that passage of scripture to speak to me. And I remember then Kareen coming up to me and saying, hey, look at this scripture that I read. And she read the scripture and it was the same scripture that I had just heard about that she had read and it jumped out to her the same way it jumped out to me. And we were kind of like, I think God is talking to us. You know, yeah, I think so too, you know, but for us it was like, really? No, let's try it again. Answer it again. But it was one of those things where, God, is this really what you want? And the scriptures just jumped out and kind of gave an affirmation that this is the step we should take. And then we can ask other questions. Because David just said, okay, that's fine. David asked, well, then where? And it got a little bit more pointed. And I think it's important for us to not only ask, but expect God to speak to us. Expect God to answer. Wait for God to answer. And listen for his voice to speak to our hearts. And he can speak through just a a desire. He could speak through the scripture. He could speak through people. God speaks to us very naturally sometimes. Sometimes it's situations that lead and open to the answer of what we're looking for. But if we're not still and if we're not quiet, we may not hear. And so the Lord says, yeah, go back and go to Hebron. Now, this is a big deal. Because now David is actually going back to his country. In verse 2, so David went up there with his two wives. I love it. It just says that. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and they... There they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. Forty years later, David is crowned as the king over Judah. Now Judah was, remember, one of the tribes. Israel, as we're going to see, is actually another tribe. And so we've got Israel and Benjamin, some of the other tribes, and we've got Judah. And these are two separate tribes. They're, they're two separate kingdoms, if you will, even though they are all the children of Jacob. So that's where we're finding ourselves going into this place. And it just it's going to get messy before it gets better, just to let you know. When David was told that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to them to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and two will let you the same favor, will show you the same favor because you have done this now, done this, excuse me. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. Why do you think David wrote to the people of Jabesh Gilead? What do you think? And there was a rift between Saul and David, right, up to this point. And so now David is placed in this place of king. What are the men of Jabesh Gilead thinking? Well, we were with Saul, and we were identified with Saul, and Saul and David had this rift going, and now David's king. What's that going to mean for us? Okay, so you can see there's some unrest there. There's like, 
what's going to happen to us? Are you going to, because we helped Saul, are you going to hold that against us? And so David eases their worries here and says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to cause any problems for you. In fact, thank you for being so kind now that I'm king. And so what he's doing is kind of removing the tension that's there. And remember, these were valiant guys to risk their lives to go and do this. And so David is kind of getting these people to be on board with what's taking place. Now that you're in my province, you're in my territory, I want you to know things are good with us. I appreciate what you've done. And so now they're not worried about, okay, is David going to come after us? He's actually saying, no, I'm the king now, but I like you. And so he's kind of easing things in there, and it's very diplomatic. Remember when David had taken the spoils from the Amalekites, he sent a bunch of it back to Israel, to the different places, to try and go before him and let them know, hey, I'm still thinking of you guys. And so David is being very political in sense right now, and he's doing a good thing by trying to instill peace with these people. And it's a great thing. So, verse 8, meanwhile, I love that, meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul. Now, Ishbosheth's name means man of shame. Just interesting. What mom gave him that name, okay? <laughs> and son of Saul and brought him over to Mahanaim. Now, we know that Saul's three sons died, and we've heard nothing about Ishbosheth. Who's, where did he come from? And we don't know. We know that Abner was the commander of Saul's army. Remember that discourse that David had with Abner? He goes, hey, Abner, where's the king's sword? Oh, by the way, I've got it. You should be killed. You're not doing your job. And David taunted him. Well, Abner seems to be the one promoting this. He's lifting up this guy to be king, and he's probably the one running things. But we don't know where Ishbosheth come from. It might be an illegitimate son, might be from one of Saul's concubines. We have no idea. But all of a sudden, there's this other son here. Remember too that David was actually Saul's son-in-law because he married his daughter Michal, which should come into play later too. It's a soap opera, isn't it? This is like man, yeah, we can days of our life. Anyway, the plot thickens. So, verse 10, or verse 9. He made him king over Gilead, Asheriah, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. So here's the other northern tribes, and then Judah's down south. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel. He reigned two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. The length of David's time was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Menhaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zuriah. Now, Zuriah, she was actually David's sister. And David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. Okay, now here we got Joab, son. Joab, 
this group here, and we have Abner and this group here, and they met at a pool in Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool and one group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted off, 12 men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and 12 for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So the place in Gibeon was called that name right there, Helkath Hazaram. And it basically means the place of blades, okay? So this is some barbaric stuff going on, okay? This is brutal stuff. You 12, go. And you 12, go. And they all stab each other and they're bloody and they die. And, and then it's like a scene from West Side Story, but for real, without the dancing, okay? And all of a sudden, you've, you've got the jets, you know, and you've got, okay, and they all just start going after each other. It's like a battle breaks out. And so the battle that day was very fierce, verse 17. And Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. The three sons of Zariah were Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now, Asahel was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. So this guy could fly. This guy could run fast. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Asahel? It is, he answered. Then Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right or to the left. Take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. The idea was, if you're going to get a trophy, don't let it be from me. Get a trophy for someone else. But Asahel would not stop chasing him. Again, Abner warned Asahel, stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look at your brother Joab in the face? But Asahel refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach and the spear came out through his back. It's there. That's what it says. He fell there and died on the spot, and every man stopped when he came to the place where Athishahel had fallen and died. So again, this is just getting bloodier and bloodier. And so now, Joab, David's right-hand commander, his brother, is killed by Abner in this gruesome way. It's not even with the, the tip of the spear, it's with the butt of the spear. And as he's chasing him, he stops and he kills him in this gruesome way. But Joab, verse 24, and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Ammon near Gaia on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. Then the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner. They formed themselves into a group and took their stand on top of a hill. Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites? In other words, we're all brothers here. Yeah, that's not what he said at the pool, remember? At the pool, it's get my 12 guys and your 12 guys and let them go at it. And it was all on then. But now that they're being pursued and they're at this, okay, come to my senses. We're all brothers here. 
This is the civil war that's taking place. Verse 27, Joab answered, As surely as God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued pursuing them until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the troops came to a halt. They no longer pursued Israel, nor did they fight anymore. All that night, Abner and his men marched through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, continued through the morning hours, and came to Mahaniam. Then Joab stopped pursuing Abner and assembled the whole army. Besides Asahil, 19 of David's men were found missing. But David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner. So it was a, they wiped them out. Okay, they lost 19, they lost 360. Remember, David's guys have been used to this kind of fighting. Okay, these other men, probably not so much. And so we see it's very one-sided. They took Asiel and buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men marched all night and arrived at Hebron at daybreak. David becomes king of Judah. But there is this kind of pseudo-king that's postured, this little puppet king in Israel, because people want power. And so they try and get the power, and Abner, no doubt, is wanting power. Now that Saul is dead, here's my chance. I'll set up this false king, and I'll use him to kind of control things. And it ends up causing the two tribes to fight, or the north and the south, to fight. And the civil war is breaking out, and we now have this bloodshed going on between family, basically. And what tragedy this is. Who would have ever thought that Jacob would have ever thought that my sons will actually be killing each other? But that's what we see taking place here. And as this takes place, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And you start looking and you could say, you know, okay, it was Abner's fault for starting this battle between the two. But then you could go back further and say, well, actually, it was Saul's fault for pursuing David and not relinquishing and acknowledging him as the king. That if Saul wouldn't have rebelled against God, that it actually could have unified the nation years later, 40 years or so earlier. And all the bloodshed that's taking place at this time could have been avoided if one man wouldn't have been so proud. And what a truth that is that our pride can cause such devastation not only in our lives but in the lives of those around us. That the things that we do that hurt and injure other people have a long-lasting effect. You know, it's the alcoholic father who abuses his family that has children that learn from their father to abuse their families. It's something that happens when, you know, you say, well, it's only not hurting anyone but myself, and it's so not true. It has such a rippling effect the things that we do, if we would recognize 
the power of our lives, both for bad and for good. That the things that Saul did that caused this rippling effect are things that could actually cause a good rippling effect, which is what Jesus has done by giving of his life and what started the church. We talked about this a little bit Sunday when we talked about the the change, bless you, from the Tower of Babel in Genesis where God came down and confounded the languages because they were seeking to have a life independent from God. And then we see Acts chapter 2 where the Spirit comes upon them and they hear everyone speaking in their own tongue where God brings the language back together to allow this message, this gospel, to proclaim throughout the world. And so God confounds them when they're trying to move away from him and cause this detachment from God and this destruction to humanity. But God unifies them when they're bringing the good news and this gospel to change the world. And so the rippling effect is something that God starts that we now get to be a part of for the good. But the story is going to get, again, worse before it gets better, and and it's messy because life is messy. Have you guys noticed that? Things just don't go easily. I mean, it's amazing how many times something happens and you think, oh boy, and then, oh no, Oh boy, oh no, you know, is it good? I don't know, maybe. Well, this sounds like it's a good thing. You know, we we get news that, oh yeah, you know, so-and-so got a job. Oh, that's great news. Oh, but they have to fill out this. Oh, okay. Oh, and they have to do a background check. Oh, okay. How is their background? Oh, well, they have this. Oh no, you know, and it's like, it starts going back and forth and it's just, that's how life is. It's good, it's difficult, it's good, it's difficult. And that's going to be what we see throughout this book. But I don't think there's enough time to get into chapter 3. It's a lengthy chapter. We'll cover that the next time. Anything stand out to you in these two chapters that we've read? um, Or things that maybe have spoken to you? Or that you would like to ask questions about? Don't know that? Yes. You know, I, I think of Jesus telling that parable about the father who told the two sons to go out and do the work, and one of the sons said, okay, I will, but didn't. And then the other one says, I'm not going to, but did it. Which one did the will of his father? It was the one who actually put into practice the right thing. I, I think putting things into practice because you know it's the right thing, I think God will look at that even though you're struggling with that in your heart. and Because we can't make ourselves just feel, you know, Oh, okay, this person's hurt me. I just like you all of a sudden. But what we can do is start acting appropriately. And what we usually find is that our emotion will find its way connected to our actions. You know, and so if we do what we know is right, even though we feel it's wrong, God will look at our intention and why we're doing that. And it'll be given to us on account of what we want to accomplish, even though it's not what we feel. You know, I forget the actor's name. It was in Schindler's List who played the commandant in the Nazi German camp. And he said after doing that role, he said, I was a more wicked person after playing this role. 
that he noticed there was a change in his personality just by assuming this role as being a commandant of this Nazi who was just an evil person, if you guys remember the movie. And he noticed a change in his character just by him acting like this person. And I think that's something that's telling for us. If we will act the way we're supposed to, a lot of times we'll find that the emotion follows where we're going because we're doing what we're supposed to. Our emotions will start to become what they're supposed to become. That's my thought. Yeah. Oh, here and then. You know. I think, you know, we have to be wise in how we move forward in that direction because we don't want to be deceitful or lying, but at the same time, what we do want to do is try and be uplifting. You know, it's the motives of why we're bringing something into light could be an important thing. Are we bringing that into light so that we could put that person down, or are we bringing that into light so that we can build that person up? You know, then motives can become an important part of that equation and how we're doing these things. But if our motive is to try and esteem others as more important than ourselves, as Philippians tells us, then it's going to help us not put people down, but actually even in the correction, try and lift them up. You know, it's like the difference between shame and guilt. Shame is telling someone you're not a good person. Guilt is telling someone, well, what you did wasn't good. You know, there's a big difference that one deals with the core of that person and kind of puts them down and the other deals with the thing that they're doing but actually lifts them up saying, this is below you, you should have done this because I see you in, in this place. Where shame is, I think you're like this and that's why you did those things. You know, and so trying to lift that person up and still understand the wrong they did, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, making that distinction, if that makes sense. You know, um, at least that's what came to mind. Yeah. Oh, well, no, that's a great question. I mean, that's because I think we all struggle with that. I mean, I think that's at the root of what she's saying. Is just you want to be truthful, but you're dealing, you know, with trying to be gracious. And is gracious being, oh, well, it doesn't matter, turn a blind eye. And I don't think that's the case. You know, it's interesting in the New Testament, when it looks back on the Old Testament saints, it always looks back in this positive light, especially like in Hebrews 11, you know, where we have this hall of faith. You know, Samson is in the hall of faith. I mean, we all know the story. That guy had all these women, and, you know, I mean, what's going on with this guy? But he's in this hall. God looks back and actually looks and says, oh, yeah, this person is a hero. But what about all he did? It's like, well, no, I, I see something different. You know, and it's not that God doesn't deal with all the things. I mean, Samson was dealt with, you know, in his life. But God sees past some of those things that I think we focus on. You know, I mean, David, how can David be a man after God's own heart? I mean, this guy is a murderer. This guy had done a lot of things. And so... We see, you know, something deeper going on, you know, as God looks not at the outward but at the inward and sees other things that perhaps we're just blind to. But but that's neat. Yeah. I think that God has a song after us. That's cool.
just don't let it be a country song. I mean, <laughs> okay, Eileen, I've changed the subject now. <laughs> well, he actually is not involved in all this. In fact, in next chapter, we're going to see that uh, Abner goes against and wants to come back to David. But because now Abner has killed Joab's son, that doesn't sit over well. And so it kind of gets tangled, but we really actually see that um, Abner wants to come over to to David's side and that um, Ishbosheth isn't with him. Probably his two wives' fault. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all right, man. If he had had one wife, he could have been more in tune with what was going on. And then the next chapter, he's got another wife. It's like, where did she come from? You know? So, anyway. Yeah, he just picks him up along the way. Hey. Like, <laughs> never mind. I was going to say, yeah, Solomon's another interesting. Well, we digress. Any other questions on on these two chapters or thoughts interesting time of Israel's history very shaping time as we're going to see in this turmoil okay well let's pray and encourage you guys to read chapter 3 next week and we'll talk some more God thank you for your words for the truth Lord that you have given to us and you, you show the reality of men's character, Lord. You you don't cover things up. You don't try and gloss over things. You deal with the reality of who we are and how we do things. And Father, I'm so grateful that we can look at these lessons and take from them things that can be helpful because we find ourselves in similar situations. Maybe not in an actual battle, but maybe in a area where there is just animosity and and hatred and we have to deal with these kinds of things and Lord we we might put on a brave face but sometimes we know that beneath us there is a lot of uh, trash a lot of darkness a lot that doesn't shine and doesn't come through well but God you know that too and you're telling us the truth about these people, and you know the truth about us. And it's comforting to know that even though you know the truth, that you love us still, and you are working within us, that you have begun a good work, and you will complete it. And Lord, we rest on your grace. We are thankful for your mercy, and we ask for your help daily, Lord. May our conversation with you not only be us talking and asking, but may it be opportunity to hear and respond. May you speak to us, Lord. May we anticipate your voice and direction in our lives. And may we not hesitate when you ask us to move or to go. May we respond and say yes. Thank you again, Lord, for this time. Bless, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.